Thanks for joining us this week, and welcome to Mutuality Matters, a weekly podcast hosted by CBE International, where our mission is to promote the biblical message that God calls women and men of all cultures, races, and classes to share authority equally in service and leadership in the home, church, and work. Let's get into this week's episode. You are listening to CBE's podcast, Mutuality Matters, the global impact of egalitarian theology on human flourishing. I am extremely honored today to welcome our guest, Catherine Marshall, who's a senior fellow at the Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace, and World Affairs, where she leads the center's work on religion and global development and is a professor of the practice of development, conflict, and religion in the Walsh School of Foreign Service. Catherine helped to create and now serves as executive director of the World Faith Development Dialogue. She is also vice president of the G20 Interfaith Association. Catherine worked uh, at the World Bank for around 30 years, beginning in 1971. It has nearly five decades of experience on a wide range of development issues in Africa, Latin America, East Asia, and the Middle East, particularly on issues facing the world's poorest countries. She led the World Bank's Faith and Ethics Initiative between the years of 2000 and 2006. Catherine, thank you so much for being on our podcast. It's a pleasure. Catherine, I'm so excited to get to meet you, and I get to start off with our first question. With all of that experience, can you speak to the connection that you have seen between religion and development? My career with the World Bank began um, as a very, very young professional, just really out of graduate school and a couple of uh, other years. Uh, But what was distinctive about it was that I was a very operational person working mostly in Africa, but also then in Latin America and later in East Asia, uh, and was part of the first, the very first group of women who were in management positions, uh, leadership positions within the institution. So that meant two different things. And I think part of the a wonderful story about that first generation was that very, very different women, a very small group, decided that if we didn't do it, who was going to? And so we decided both to support the promotion and development and mentoring of women within the institution, but also looking strategically at issues for gender and making them part of the development agenda in meaningful ways. So even though that was not my primary responsibility, I was first working on agriculture and then as a country manager and country director, uh, that was my focus for many years until uh, the president of the World Bank, Jim Wolfenson, drafted me uh, to work uh, on the issues, the initiative he had started to try to bridge a large gulf between the worlds of development and religion. Wow. So you had to see the need and highlight it for others to be able to see it and then finally begin a good initiative towards it. Yeah, it it was not something that I had been 
particularly aware of or had thought much about. And in fact, one of the interesting things for me now is revisiting hmm. both places and issues that I had worked on before without any religious lens and then looking at them through a religious lens. And it's quite difficult, different. Uh, but I think what was and what kept me involved and got me involved deeper and deeper was that Wolfenson, the president's idea of working with a small group of people uh, to uh, launch an initiative on religion and development was immensely controversial. Uh, he was often proud of saying that it was unanimously against, uh, unanimously opposed. And so I spent a great deal of time in those early months and years trying to understand what this was about, um, why a dialogue, how could a dialogue be controversial? So that was, that was uh, the, the first task, really. Mm, that's fascinating. Very interesting. Catherine, during your 30-year tenure at the World Bank, and you were executor, executive director of the World Faith Development Dialogue, can you share with our audience what this was and how it impacted your work with the World Bank? Well, it was, in, in some senses, a very new uh, initiative in my own career uh, that I view as, to a large extent, accidental that I was in the right place or the wrong place uh, at a certain time. Uh, and the first comment I would make was what an extraordinary learning experience it was to look at the same places, the sa often the same people, the same topics, for example, child protection or water or HIV AIDS or um, educational issues uh, through very, very different lenses. Uh, and uh, to understand why it was that so many in the development world, but I would also say the humanitarian world, were so uneasy about religion. Uh, and over time, we had a lot of meetings and consultations and interviews to try to understand what it was about. And the first thing, it was, it was very clear that people saw religion as profoundly political in a not very positive sense, that it was about comp competition uh, and conflict um, later and, and continually the issue of proselytization comes up again and again as a, as a concern. Not concern for the poor, not concern for welfare, but competition and a search for adherence. Uh, but the other side, which I think relates very much to the podcast today, is that there was a very strong sense that religious communities, re religious teachings opposed the central human rights, equality, equity principles of development. And that was particularly true in the positions on women, uh, the patriarchy, the reluctance to see women in equal roles within families, within communities, taking on leadership. Uh, and so, of course, it, the initial effort was to try to understand better where these ideas were coming from, to understand and to communicate the diversity of religious communities, that religion is not a thing 
it's not one particular perspective. It's 80, if we, if we accept that 84% of the world's population as the Pew Research Center says has some religious affiliation, that's obviously most of the world's people. So what does that mean? How does that affect their behavior? How does it affect the way they respond to ideas and to change, uh, which is really what development is about. It's about profound changes in society uh, over, over people's lives. I think though that there is another piece to that that the religious actors can tend to downplay, which is that people have multiple identities. Yes. So that even though there is this figure that 84% of the world's population has some religious affiliation or identity, that doesn't mean that that's the primary force that drives them. You have their family, their nationality, their profession, uh, their personality, so many, their ethnicity, uh, the place where they live, uh, so many different factors. Uh, but yes, it is remarkable that a systematic look at the religious identities was so difficult. And it is partly because there are so many sensitivities that are associated with religions. Yeah. Yes, that makes sense. I'm going to pivot a little bit to your personal life. Catherine, and ask you if there's anything that has happened in your life personally or professionally that really has shaped your views on power and gender. Well, there are many things. So that I think professionally, I would say that being an improbable first, uh, doing many of the things that I did, um, clearly forced me to have many different insights and to raise the constant question of what makes being a woman in a professional world distinctive. And uh, I think I started with what I call, um, from a very old musical, the Annie Get Your Gun, you know, anything I can do, you can do, I can do better. And a limited sort of acceptance that there was really any difference. Uh, as I, I went through um, multiple pregnancies, I had an, a long saga with many different pregnancies that I lost, but ended up with two children uh, and I'm re happily retired now. But the child rearing really brought home to me as it does for so many people the ways that girls and boys react so differently. Uh, and I had the opportunity to work at some points with Deborah Tannen, uh, who's written these books about communication between men and women with extraordinary insight. Mm. Uh, and so came to look at having a mix of men and women um, and listening to the women's voices, not the same thing, obviously, uh, in the professional setting as being extremely important and enriching. Um, it brings a different style, but it also brings quite often very different agendas, mm -hmm. uh, different priorities. Uh, and that comes out of surveys, but obviously it also comes out of just being together with uh, so many women and groups of women and 
groups of men and women and seeing the way that they respond to to many different issues. Hmm. Amazing. I'm jealous. You were able to work with Dr. Tanner. <laughs> How exciting. I wondered, you mentioned your work with Deborah, and, and now I wonder, is there a, an individual that sort of pulled these three threads together for you, uh, shaping your outlook on equality for women in society and also in faith traditions? I wouldn't say that that there really is. I'm going to mention Madeleine Albright. Uh, she, in some ways, had a similar experience of trying to articulate in a thoughtful way what it means to be a woman working in a man's world. Um, and she also, of course, addressed the question of what's religion got to do with it? And how do you think about it in ways that are subtle and meaningful, uh, which is the way that they need to be addressed, I think. Uh, not as an advocate necessarily, but to bring in um, the complexity um, and the, the richness of these different traditions and ways that people respond to them. So I, I think I'd put her on my list. Um, I also have great admiration for many other women, including Grasa Machel, uh, who, among other distinctions, married uh, Nelson Mandela. Uh, but she's been a very strong advocate for children and brings a very thoughtful approach uh, to the policy issues that she deals with. Hmm. What a great choice of mentors. When you th consider your work with World Bank, um, how does it inform your views on male-female power dynamics organizationally and on the field? You've kind of addressed this, but if we can pin it down a little more. Well, when I joined the World Bank, if you were in an elevator, a crowded elevator, you probably would have roughly half men and half women. But it was a very clear position that the women were the secretaries and the flunkies, and the men were the ones who were in charge. Of course, the women's networks were fascinating. I mean, they had more influence than people realized, but it was obviously a very different situation uh, when they had no acknowledged power. In fact, we look now at issues of peace building, and one of the fascinating things is women's invisibility which for some people is an asset. Uh, so the sort of obvious male domination, you look at photographs of history and they're all men. I mean, it's, it's um, re remarkable that, that the women were simply invisible, even though they were obviously there. And then you saw the gradual change uh, that took place uh, with some support. Interestingly, the, the men who supported it were, very often men with strong-minded daughters. Uh, that clearly made a big difference. But another thing that made a big difference, and it's an issue that we struggle with constantly on the religious sort of side, is what people call evidence. Uh, and is there evidence? What is? What do we know really about how religion, religion or how gender affects um, a given issue. And the most significant there was research 
very powerful research about the benefits of girls' education uh, that came to be seen by people, including Larry Summers, who was the Secretary of the Treasury and the Chief Economist at the World Bank and President of Harvard University, was seen, uh, he, he describes it often as the single best investment that you can make in the world is in girls' education. And that, watching the way that research and those insights changed people's minds, at least on the surface, was, was very significant. I mean, another issue that I think we have to mention um, is the exploitation of women, including harassment issues, which were very common. And in an international institution, you might expect certain nationalities to be more prone to uh, be the harassers. But in fact, it was very often not the um, it was Americans uh, who were uh, very much involved in, in some of the nastier harassment cases and watching how difficult it was for the institution to come to terms with that and to deal with that. And now I have colleagues who are working on um, sexual abuse in the Catholic Church and other churches, and there's so many parallels between the ways in which that kind of power corrupts within a church institution, but it was not very dissimilar in an international organization or an interfaith organization. So the, the need for protection, even though one of the tragedies of harassment is that the person who comes forward never wins. Uh, we know that, and we knew that at the time, and the only way we could really deal with it was with humor. Uh, but um, but there still is is um, a long way to go in having the kind of basic respect, but also humanity that allows people to work together in ways that are that are civilized, if I may call it that, um, and modern uh, that don't hark back to the ways things were thousands of years ago. Yeah, I mean, think about the power dynamics of power corrupts regardless of where you are and mm -hmm. and it's going to look the same no matter where you are and we have this treasure in faith where we see women and men made in imago day in the image of god that could really be used to help diffuse some of this uh corruption and abuse of women if we could use it right <laughs> Right now, Catherine um, and our audience, we'd like to take a short break to highlight CBE's upcoming international conference. Registration is now open for CBE's 2022 International Conference in Atlanta, Georgia. Join us in person August 5th through 7th as we explore the fullness of Galatians 328 beside leaders from around the world. Be a part of the conversation on women, race, and ethnicity. Register now before April 30th to receive the early bird pricing of $249. Visit CBE's website to register and see information on the event schedule, lodging, speakers, and sponsorship opportunities. We hope to see you there this August as we explore the fullness of Galatians 3.28. So Catherine, we uh, really are so thankful for your work as a leader in the humanitarian space worldwide, but I'm really curious as to what changes you have seen as a result of nonprofits in the World Bank, for example, taking religion seriously as they elevate the status of women? 
Well, in a way, there are two different issues, um, though I see eerie parallels between them. The first one is taking women's roles seriously, and the second is taking religion seriously. Um, the parallel between them is how difficult it has been to have thoughtful, if you can call it rational approaches to these issues, because for both gender issues and religion, people often approach them in very emotional ways. Sort of how do I feel? What's this going to do to my relationship with my wife or my daughter? And what do I believe? And what do I think about religion as opposed to the people that you deal with? And in both cases, I think that has made it difficult to have these issues as, as people say, mainstreamed within the institution so that it's, it's not something that needs an extra push, that it's simply a normal part of doing business. And that's the objective. Um, I think, though, that on gender issues, we still have a long way to go in, in reaching an ideal where the roles of men and women are balanced, are subtly understood, are seen in their, all, in their full diversity. And that's even more true for the religious side, that the idea of what, what should you do? What, how would it look different if you took religion seriously in any given context? Because it's very, very context specific. Uh, so if you look at Malawi, or if you look at El Salvador, or if you look at Cambodia, um, the issues that involve women are very different. Um, and the issues of religion are very, very different. And there isn't a single model. So I think we're still at an early stage of working towards what we would call strategic religious engagement. In other words, really looking in thoughtful ways, saying, okay, what is the development agenda? What is What are the areas of convergence? Is it education? Is it protecting children? Uh, and what are areas of real difference? Uh, is it about economic models or is it about um, electoral politics or, you know, what, what, is, what is the crunch point? What are those kinds of issues? And there are very few cases where you can really point to people looking and asking those questions. It's something we've done at the Berkeley Center and WFDD as we've done. We've looked at countries, 10 countries in all, where we've essentially started with the development agenda, the sustainable development goals, uh, government's official policies, the World Bank, the European Union, their official policy. And then we look at what religious communities are doing in all their rich diversity. And then we try to, to look at where the intersections are and where, the, where there are positive forces and where there are much less positive ones. So hmm. you would basically say you're still in a information gathering stage. You haven't really seen the impact of implementation at this point. Is that right? Well, I don't know if it's information gathering. It's um, because so much of this is, uh, is a question of approach and attitudes. Mm -hmm. um, so in some places, there's plenty of information available. Uh, but it's, uh, it's a question of knowing who to bring to the table. 
And of course, one of the problems is that the first instinct is to reach out to um, ordained clerics, to the official leaders, and they may not be the most significant leaders. Uh, they probably have no women there and no young people, but also people who are running development programs, whether it's the big NGOs like World Vision, World Belief, um, Caritas, uh, Tsuchi, Islamic Relief, or whether it's smaller organizations and communities. So knowing who to bring to the table uh, is a constant question and what, what to ask them, what to hear uh, of what they have to say. Well, are you seeing any common denominators in this conversation? Are any common paths sort of emerging through the forest for you? Well, in there are different phases. Um, I really don't see clear paths, but so much of the, the, the dialogue in the World Bank started in 1999, 1998, 99, 2000. In other words, before 9-11. But 9-11 and some of the subsequent violent um, attacks changed the discourse. Um, and it, in a way, what you see now are deep divides in the way people look at religion, but also in the ways that religious communities look at these questions. Some of the, the voices that are right out in front in terms of changing economic models and environmental protection. And then you have what, what some call the unholy alliance in the United Nations, where there's even a consensus among countries influenced by religious communities to strip domestic violence from resolutions uh, and really to, to, in the name of the family or a notion of the family, um, to undercut some of the most important measures for child protection uh, and for advancement, empowerment, as it's called, of women. So I think that we're rather than seeing a single path, we're seeing a lot of fits and starts, very dependent on individual leadership, and some very sharp divides. Mm -hmm. They're also seen in the way people talk about religious freedom, mm -hmm. or freedom of religion or belief, and very different views as to what that means. Uh, and how it applies, including how it applies to women and women's roles. Hmm. So the common ground is noticing the differences. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would like to think that the common ground is appreciating the diversity, that, that there really is an enormous spectrum, uh, very, very different, and that when you, I don't even use the word religion because I think it's too broad. I try to use it as an adjective. So at least we say religious beliefs or religious leaders or religious practices or religious communities, which at least gets you a little bit closer to what it is we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe one path of hope is uh, the document you sent me, Catherine, last year, the concept note from room five, the 2021 report. That was really just inspiring to me, I think hopefully to you as well, as it summarized ideas and actions on the topic of gender equality. And it identifies really three uh, 
well, maybe two prominent paths forward in that while religious patriarchy can be, you know, a, a clear and devastating obstacle to humanitarian goals, there are some positive outcomes of working with faith actors in dismantling patriarchy, including, you know, finding places in their faith tradition that speak to women's equality and the role of men and women allies and so forth. So can you maybe comment on this a bit from your experiences? I should start, and just in case it's not clear from what I say, that I think that the changing roles of men and women that are a part of modernization are one of the most positive features of the changes that we're all living. Uh, But they are also profound and disruptive. In other words, people lived in societies where everybody knew their role and it was all ordered and it included not only um, servants, but leaders and women were expected to be subordinate and places they couldn't go, even in my own lifetime. I mean, that's not very long ago that there were so many things girls couldn't do, including going to medical school and law school. So I have no question in my mind that however however many issues we've not dealt with, the issues of childcare and, and uh, so many other issues that we have yet as a society to deal with, that the opening up of these relationships is profoundly positive. And there are clearly, I think this is Mimi, what you're suggesting is that there are deep roots to that in religious traditions. And you have this constant debate about whether subordination of women and patriarchy is, is it culture? Is it religion? Uh, Is it just habit? Or is it something that's actually sort of built in to the the system? So I think that the, the fact that so many people, particularly women, of course, are looking in different ways uh, at their teachings and at different traditions and seeing so the opportunities, the strength that comes with, with, um, with more equal societies that do not have the hierarchies, that do not have the expectations that, that people will simply do what their parents did or what their parents said. But, you know, the questions authority, um, the meaning of authority has is very different today. And it is clear that to me that that so much within religious traditions, the stories, the the narratives, the um, the emphasis on on core beliefs, uh, that those shape the way our ethical compass emerges for so many of us, whether we know it or not. And I think that those those basic questions of values and ability to see others uh, and see something divine in the human condition and in others is is at the core of human rights and the kinds of of, um, basic values that to me drive drive um, the development agendas and why I've done that for for all my life, that we genuinely believe, which was never true in history, that we can and we therefore must work for a decent life for every human being that's born. For for all of history, poverty was basically inevitable. Uh, Lives were short, children died. A 
quarter to a third of children died before they were five. And we now have a fundamentally different picture and a different possibility. Mm. Uh, and that is, that is what this development agenda is about, is both the freedom, uh, but also the possibility of, of less suffering and more opportunity to flourish. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, as you talk, I'm my doing kind of struggles in the back of my head because in my work in development, it seemed like uh, the world had, the development world had understood that to make this change that you're talking about, you have to concentrate on women. And there was a huge push for maternal and child care, a huge push for women's literacy, for adolescent groups. Um, I know in India, where I work, this hospital organization, I mean, their community health and development, that is what they were focused on. And, and it was informed by faith. Um, and so I, I, I do think that, that there have been changes. Like you said, we have to remember that when you were a child, even women couldn't go to medical school, very few. And now a lot of things have changed. Um, and yet there's still problems. So when we look at this humanitarian um, issue, when we look at religion, from your vantage point, what do you think are kind of some of the key things or the, some of the struggles that humanitarian organizations are having when they're considering the biblical equality for women? And, and what do you think would be some good approaches to dealing that? And why is this important for Christians when, when they're really concerned about justice and human flourishing? Well, I, I would have to say that there's some puzzles for me in it. Um, I think the first that comes to my mind is the unease with change that the, the, human the ways in which people think about their roles within families are, are changing not in trivial ways, um, but in profound, uh, in profound ways. Uh, and we all know that part of the issue with gender is raising men, our boys, <laughs> to, be, uh, to have different values and to deal with the impulses to violence and all of the other issues that we know all too well. So, so I think that there is the resistance to change. I think that one of the most complicated issues is, is thinking about families and the notion of the traditional family, which seems to be, even though it's statistically untrue, I mean, that is not the way families are with mother, father, and children and father in a steady um, patriarchal role. That's not the pattern of statistical families in the United States and frankly, in much of the world. But still, that's a deeply ingrained attitude. And so I think that the, the, the broadening the notion of family is one of the <laughs> priorities to understand the the diversity uh, and the importance that everyone attaches to their family, no matter what it looks like, even if it's a chosen family as opposed to a blood, a family linked by bloodlines. Um, and then I think the factor that you both have mentioned on a couple of occasions, which is power. No one likes to give up power and authority, or very few people do. Uh, and uh, so questioning and, and challenging 
notions of who decides so that you have a much flatter, um, a much flatter democracy. I think that that, that question of, of learning to develop and to adapt to modern notions of, of, uh, of democracy, if we can call it that, are, are another factor that's involved. So, uh, but when I look much more broadly at the religious landscape, I do see the diversity and the exciting leadership that you're seeing from individuals and from communities, but you also do have what's called the unholy alliances that question whether it's not all right for husbands to beat wives and honor killings and all of the other horrors that we see that exemplify these this unease at questioning tradition and authority. Well, Catherine, it's conversations like this that really open sky above our heads worldwide. And I was delighted to see throughout this conversation a link to the Imago Dei, the image of God, that divine presence of moral moral leadership for both men and women, all humankind. I was, um, it evokes the memory of Charles Malik, who was the general secretary as the UN was writing the Declaration of Human Rights. And Charles Malik is very well known to my family in Lebanon, and you could not mention the name of Christ without Charles falling into tears. And his love of Christ and his faith, I think, drove much of his humanitarian work uh, beside Eleanor Roosevelt as they were working so closely together years ago. But we, Kim and I, could be with you day and night here talking on these very crucial topics. And we thank you so much for your time today. It's precious to us. You are precious to us. Oh, my goodness, Kim. Was that the most amazing podcast? Catherine Marshall an hour goes by in like 15 seconds. She has so much experience and such a broad view of things. Sometimes it was hard to keep up. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I know. It's definitely mental exercise and spiritual exercise. So I wanted to share with you a screen here. I hope our listeners can see it. The ways in which humanitarian like Catherine, support both Christian faith and faith actors, as well as women's equality. And so many groups like the IMF, the World Bank, and others show how women's equality is essential to human flourishing. Our goal as egalitarian Christians is to argue that Christian faith supports gender equality as a biblical ideal from Genesis to Revelation as the path towards human flourishing. And so we work with humanitarians like Catherine, and she works with us to mobilize faith actors, which you know quite a bit about. Yeah, I was thinking as I listened to her, and I mentioned it a little bit in the interview, is the work that I have seen and done, um, mostly in India, but I've seen a lot of examples in Africa, have actually taken this intersection that you're saying, the humanitarian work, gender equality, and Christian faith, and um, put them together, especially organizations like World Vision, World Relief, I worked with Emmanuel Hospital Association, Compassion International, where they do take really seriously the fact that women are made in the image of God and that we know in the development world that if you are not addressing women, nobody's going to get healthier. Your families are going to stay sick. Your lifespans are going to stay short. Your communities are going to stay sick. 
And we know that if you focus on women, everything will transform. And it's such a beautiful trinity when you think of humanitarian work, gender equality, and Christian faith. Oh, I love the word Trinity that you evoke here because <clears throat> it is sort of an interplay of these three, each um, Christian faith guiding gender equality and its impact worldwide. These examples are powerful. And I've been on the field <clears throat> in groups where Catherine has worked and seen the outcome of gender equality, but with through Christian faith actors, they give them Christians have a biblical reason to serve God in this way by elevating the dignity and value and agency of girls and women worldwide. Yep. And soon you'll get to hear our interview with Scott Arbiter, who also covers this really well and how this is so central to their work with World Relief. Yes. And we have many more lined up behind them. So keep in touch and we'll see you soon. All right, audience, we just want to thank you for joining us today. Stay tuned to the new episodes coming to you weekly from our incredible team of co-hosts. And in the meantime, go to the show notes and learn how you can follow our guests and find links to organizations, books, and resources mentioned in this interview. And be sure to follow CB International on Facebook and Twitter. Go to their website at www.cbeinternational.org for even more content and subscribe to their blog, magazine, and academic journal. Watch videos and listen to audio of past conferences and events and visit their bookstore where you can find talented authors and subjects that will enrich your faith and equip you to use your God-given talents in leadership and service to the gospel for all, regardless of gender, ethnicity, or class. I am Kimberly Dixon. And I'm Amy Haddad. And we would like to thank Landon, our support tech and the team at CBE International that makes this podcast possible. We are Mutuality Matters. Thanks for listening. God bless you. Looking for more information about CBE and our mission for biblical equality? Then please visit cbeinternational.org for more information. And please be sure to tune in each week for new episodes here or wherever else you listen to podcasts.